Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Just as most people were preparing for a contested Republican convention, Donald Trump won a landslide victory in Indiana that knocked his rivals, Ted Cruz and John Kasich, out of the race and made him the Grand Old Party's presumptive presidential nominee. We're going to start winning again and we're going to win bigly. So, after 14 months on the campaign trail, we can now say with almost certainty that the general election in November will pit Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. Let's have a great election that shapes the future we want. Welcome to the FT's U.S. Election Countdown Podcast. I'm Dmitry Sevastopolo in Washington, fresh off the plane from Indiana, and joining me from West Virginia is Courtney Weaver. Hi, Dmitry. Hey, Courtney. How are you? Good. I'm in a Wendy's parking lot right now, uh, just off a Bernie Sanders rally and about to go to a Donald Trump rally. Some people get all the good gigs. <laughs> so it's been quite the week since we last spoke. You know, we have... Basically, we have now have both sides wrapping up the nominations much quicker than we both expected. How did this all happen? Well, you know, as uh, we went into Indiana, everyone was talking about a contested convention. People said that it was going to be very hard for Donald Trump to get the 1,237 delegates that you need to win the nomination on the first ballot when the Republicans meet in Cleveland in July. But in Indiana, he swept the floor. He got all 57 delegates in the state. It was a state where uh, Ted Cruz was expected to do better than he had done in the Northeast over the previous two weeks. And yet he did terribly. And uh, I was in the room that night in Indianapolis when Ted Cruz was giving his post-primary speech. And it was very somber. And Cruz came on the stage and he said, you know, I said I would stay in this race as long as there was a viable path to victory. And he said, today, the uh, viable path has been foreclosed. And there were tears in the audience. People were shouting out, no, Ted, no, Ted, go to California. Um, But he had clearly realized that Donald Trump was just the momentum was too great. And there was no hope for either him or, and even more so for John Kasich, the Ohio governor, to have a chance at the nomination. So he jumped out and uh, Kasich jumped out the next day and that leaves Donald Trump. So here we go. Yeah. And we kind of saw some of the biggest fireworks yet between Cruz and Trump uh, earlier that day on Tuesday when you had Trump bringing up a National Enquirer story, talking about allegations that Cruz's father was somehow involved in the JFK assassination uh, which are which is pretty ludicrous, and then you know Cruz really firing back at Trump and calling him some of the biggest insults we've heard from him to date. Yeah, I mean that, it was it was really amazing. I mean uh, Donald Trump has made a whole business out of conspiracy theories, whether it's uh, uh, alleging that President Obama was not born in the U.S. Um, to now saying that Ted Cruz's father might might have been involved in the assassination of JFK. Um, it was an amazing day. But I think overall, what was happening was that the, the people, the Republican base have just decided that, that Donald Trump is their man. And they want him uh, leading the flag as they go into the fight against Hillary Clinton in November. And I think the kind of feeling in Indiana was that no matter what happened, 
by the end of the day, Trump was going to come out as, as the victor. But we just didn't expect it to happen so dramatically and so quickly. Yeah, and I think so quite something. neither did the Republican establishment. I mean, just seeing the sort of comments we're getting from people over the past couple of days has been really interesting. You know, Cruz, when he gave his concession speech, he didn't mention Trump once. And then you have Paul Ryan coming out uh, and making some very interesting comments, you know, basically becoming the first, I mean, that he's the highest... Republican uh, elected public official uh, in the U.S. And he's basically saying, at this point, I'm not ready to support Trump. No, it's incredible. I mean, normally, once you have a presumptive nominee, whether it's at the convention or weeks or months before the convention, most of the party rallies behind that person, even if they've been the most vicious rivals beforehand. They come together and they start to look at the opponent on the other side. But in the last couple of days, we've had both... George W. Bush and his father, George Bush, who are the two only living former Republican presidents, saying they will not support uh, Donald Trump, which is maybe understandable, given that Trump basically uh, beat the hell out of their, out of their son and uh, brother, Jeb Bush, calling him a low-energy guy. But Mitt Romney, the 2012 nominee, John McCain, the 2008 nominee, they've both said that they won't go to the convention and they're finding it very hard to support Donald Trump. And now Paul Ryan, I mean, Paul Ryan was the guy that many people said might come in to rescue the party if there was a contested convention. He himself poured cold water on that a few weeks ago. Uh, and he said all along he will support the nominee of the party. But now it comes out and says, I'm not ready to do that. And we need to unify the party and Donald, work. Donald Trump has a lot more work to do, which was incredible. I mean, A, it just shows the deep divisions in the party and how much work Donald Trump has to do. And second of all, it, it makes it very difficult for Republicans across the country who face tough races in November in, in congressional seats, uh, congressional districts, and in the Senate to decide which way they're going to pivot. Do they endorse Donald Trump or do they not endorse Donald Trump? And how will it play if they, if they, depending on which path they choose? So it's quite an incredible day today. And I think, um, you know, Donald Trump is almost certainly going to face Hillary Clinton. But before November, he somehow is going to have to get the party together on his side. And, uh, you know, that's going to be really interesting to see how he does that. Yeah, I mean, I just t t talking to people in D.C. and then talking to people out on the road. I mean, this point has been made more than once, but I think it's, you know, really apt, which is that, you know, never in the history kind of history of polling have we had two U.S. Democratic Republican nominees who were so hated by the majority of the U.S. electorate. I mean, they're figured Trump has a, a higher unfavorability rating than Hillary Clinton does. But the fact that basically you know, upwards of almost two thirds of the country dislikes both the candidates is really extraordinary. And so it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, people actually go to the polls in November and cast a vote for someone that they don't like, or whether more people will stay at home than they did in 2008, for instance. Yeah, it reminds me of that joke that um, in November, the most of the American people might be trying to flee the country. So Canada and Mexico might actually have to build <laughs> their own walls to keep the Americans out. I mean, who knows what's going to happen. So listen, I, let, Let's talk a little bit about Clinton. So she had a, a, a loss to Bernie Sanders in Indiana, kind of reinforcing the narrative of the Democratic race. How important was that? And you're, you've just come from a Bernie Sanders rally. What's the mood there? I think it's important. I mean, it's really interesting. You know, people have been calling Clinton the presumptive nominee since early March, and most people thought the Democratic race was going to be wrapped up much sooner. And then lo and behold, this week, uh, you have all of 16 of the Republican candidates are now out and only Trump remains. Whereas on the Democratic side, you still have a pretty competitive two-person race. Uh, I mean, I think most people at this point don't think that Sanders is going to get the nomination 
even most of his supporters have come around to that fact. But I think it's interesting that even though people are hearing, you know, on the media and they see the numbers uh, and they know that he probably won't be the nominee, they're still coming out and voting for him. I just was talking to one guy at this uh, Bernie Sanders rally I was just at in West Virginia, and he was saying he was planning to vote for Bernie, but it was more of an anti-Clinton vote than a pro-Bernie vote. Um, And he was saying, you know, he's an independent. He voted for Barack Obama. And he was saying, come November, he he said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I would vote for Trump over Clinton. So this is really, I mean, this kind of hatred for Clinton among certain uh, Democrats in the party uh, is really going to be a problem moving into the general election. And as much as Trump is hated by some Republican voters, uh, Clinton, to some extent, is also hated by some Democratic voters. So the question is, how does she rally the party behind her uh, and get these people on board and get her, get them to come out and vote for her? And, and what do you think? What is her campaign? What are they thinking at the moment in terms of how they might do that? I think, I mean, you can, there's definitely been a palpable shift this week in terms of the Clinton campaign focusing on November, uh, even though Bernie is still in the race, even though he's expected to do well here in West Virginia on in the primary on Tuesday, all of their focus for the past two days has been on Trump. They released this really uh, interesting ad yesterday, basically collating all the insults of Trump and criticisms of Trump that people like Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney have made over the past few months. Uh, you know, they've obviously been sitting on it for a while. But then even when um, Paul Ryan gave this interview to CNN, within minutes of the interview being released, the Clinton campaign jumped on it and emailed all the reporters saying, look, here's another Republican who doesn't like Trump. So all their focus is on that. I mean, I think right now they're just trying to build a case that Trump is, uh, you know, they're calling him a bigot. They're implying that he's racist and sexist uh, and trying to build up enough hatred for him among minorities, among women and Democrats to make sure that and they think that will carry them over the edge. I don't know if we're going to see a more nuanced Trump strategy from them going forward. Well, it's really interesting. When I was at a Trump rally in South Bend in Indiana on Monday night, the night before the primary, I specifically talked to a lot of women who were there and asked them whether they were uh, concerned about the comments that Trump has made about women, whether it's about their appearance or other things. And it was interesting. Most of the women I talked to said that they either thought the comments had been taken out of context or they didn't think it was important. They said, uh, we care about the bigger issues that Donald Trump is talking about. And yes, he insults people. And yes, he's a blowhard. And we know that. But actually, we want someone who's kind of bigger than everything else. And we think he's our guy. And, and one line I heard quite a lot from people is, well, actually, you know something? Yes, he has insulted women, but he's an, he's an equal opportunity insulter. And he insults <laughs> men and women. And isn't that what modern America is all about? Um, I mean, whether that argument yeah. is going to hold up in the... Uh, in the general election, when you have you know more independent voters, I don't know. It's uh, yeah. It's going to be very interesting to uh, see who Donald Trump picks as his VP, his vice presidential running mate. But I mean, Trump himself has given some hints. I mean, he said uh, he wants someone who can work very well with Congress. He suggested that he might pick someone out of the other sixteen rivals that that uh, opposed him for the nomination. So if you were to think about those two facts, then you would have to think about someone like Marco Rubio, who's very popular in Congress. Um, He -hmm. also would do probably well with Hispanics. He's a Cuban-American, and and Trump somehow needs to win over or or win back some of the Hispanic vote that the Republican Party has almost certainly lost because of his comments about Mexicans. John Kasich might be a possibility. I mean, Kasich has very good relations with a lot of people in Congress from his time as a congressman there. 
uh, senior congressional uh, committee chairman. And he's a moderate governor of Ohio, so he's he's got executive experience. Uh, and then you've got Chris Christie, who was one of the first people to come out and endorse Trump. He's the New Jersey uh, New Jersey governor, um, and uh, a lot of people think Chris Christie is looking for a big job in the Trump administration if that happens. So uh, there are three of the names you would have to think about. And but maybe Trump would will pick a woman to try and someone who can challenge Hillary Clinton and kind of neutralize the the gender issues. So what's so? Who's your money on? I mean, the thing I'm not I'm not going to reveal my name quite yet, but I I think the thing that's interesting is, you know, it was a really vicious primary on the Republican side. And, you know, you mentioned Marco Rubio. Trump was taunting him, uh, you know, calling him little Marco. And then, you know, you had these the whole exchange about the hands. And I mean, it really was like middle school style insults there. And just the fact that we're even, you know, considering the idea that Rubio would become Trump's VP is is just extraordinary. And even, you know, Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, who helped, you know, campaign for Rubio in that state. Now she's being floated as a possible VP. And she I mean, she was out there criticizing Trump all through the primary. So I feel like it's just, you know, emblematic of what's going on in the party right now and how so many of these, you know, never Trump, anti-Trump people now seem to be coming on board with him, which is just extraordinary. Well, I, I guess in politics, you can never underrate ambition. I mean, even if you look back to 1980, when Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. ran against each other, that was a, a pretty tough race and lots of uh, pretty harsh things were said. But at the end of the day, Reagan ended up picking Bush as his vice presidential uh, running mate. So that was quite interesting. So I think, you know, if if the call comes and you're asked to be the uh, occupy the second highest office in the land, it's probably pretty hard for most people to say no. Although that is assuming that Trump will win, you know, and that you're not tying yourself to a failed presidential bid. So any predictions for next week? We have uh, West Virginia and Nebraska coming up. Yeah, I mean, I think the main prediction is that there's going to be a lot less attention on those races now than uh, than this week, now that we know who's the almost certainly the, the nominee on the Republican side. And, and Clinton has more or less locked things up on the Democratic side. So I mean, but West Virginia is you know, a fascinating state. Uh, it's one of the economically most disadvantaged states in the country. So I mean, what, what kind of things are people talking about down there now? I mean, I think one of the most interesting things here is just looking at how the st- state, you know, which voted for Clinton in the Democratic primary in 2008 and voted for Bill Clinton in 1992 and 1996, um, has really become disillusioned with the Democratic Party under Barack Obama. Um, I mean, part of it has to do with the coal industry and people not liking Obama's uh, policies towards climate change uh, and towards the coal industry and regulation. Um, But I think it's part of this bigger disillusionment and, you know, states that are more impoverished and more rural feeling like they're not part of the rest of the country and they're not seeing the benefits um, after the Great Recession that some other states are seeing. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, to all of those listening, I think we've only got at this point uh, six more months to the election, which is kind of amazing when you think we've already been on the trail for 14. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Dimi Sevastopula. That's D-I-M-I-S-E-V-A-S-T-O-P-U-L-O. And that's a good old Irish name in case you were wondering. And Courtney is at Courtney underscore FT. That's C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y underscore FT. You can also sign up for our daily campaign trail newsletter, White House Countdown, at ft.com forward slash NBE. That stands for news by email. Again, ft.com forward slash NBE. 
And be sure to download FT Politics when you get your podcasts, including on iTunes, Stitcher, and Acast. This podcast was produced and edited by Amy Keane. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.